0: section two of the sunny side by a a milne this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two men of letters john penquarto a tale of literary life in london modeled on the hundred best authors one john penquarto looked round his diminutive bed sitting-room with a feeling of excitement not unmixed with awe so this was london the new life had begun with a beating heart he unpacked his bag and set out his simple belongings first his books his treasured books where should he put them it was comforting to think that wherever they stood they would be within reach of his hand as he lay in bed he placed them on the window-sill and read their titles again reverently: Half-Hours with Our Water-Beetles, The Fretworker's Companion, and Strenuous Days in Simla. He owed everything to them, and what an air they gave to the room. But not such an air as was given by his other treasure-the photograph of Mary. Mary! He had only met her once, and that was twenty years ago, at his native Paul Wallop. He had gone to the big house with a message for Mr. Trevanna, her ladyship's butler. Mother's respects, and she has found the other shirt-front, and will send it up as soon as it is dry. He had often taken a similar message, for Mrs. Pancuarto did the washing for the upper servants at the hall but somehow he had known that today was going to be different there just inside the gates was mary he was only six but even then he knew that never would he see again anything so beautiful she was five but there was something in her manner of holding herself and the imperious tilt of her head which made her seem almost five and a half i'm mary she said he wanted to say that he was John, but could not. He stood there, tongue-tied. "'I love you,' she went on. His heart beat tumultuously. He felt suffocated. He longed to say, "'So do I,' but was afraid that it was not good English. Even then he knew that he must be a writer when he grew up. She leant forward and kissed him. He realized suddenly that he was in love— The need for self-expression was strong upon him. Shyly, he brought out his last acid drop and shared it with her. He had never seen her since, but even now, twenty years after, he could not eat an acid drop without emotion, and a whole bag of them brought the scene back so visibly as to be almost a pain. Yes, he was to be a writer. There could be no doubt of that. "'Everybody had noticed it. "'The vicar had said, "'Johnny will never do any good at Paul Wallop, I fear. "'And the farmer, for whom John scared Rooks, had said, see, lad seems daft like "'And one after another of Mrs. Penquarta's friends "'had given similar testimony. "'And now here he was, at twenty-six, "'in the little bed-sitting-room in Bloomsbury, ready to write the great novel which should take london by storm paul wallop seemed a hundred years away feverishly he seized pen and paper and began to wonder what to write two it was near the albert memorial that the great inspiration came to him some weeks later those had been weeks of mingled hope and despair of hope as he had fondled again his treasured books and read their titles or gazed at the photograph of mary of despair as he had taken off his belt and counted out his rapidly decreasing stock of money or reflected that he was as far from completing his novel as ever sometimes in the search for an idea he had frequented the restaurants where the great samuel johnson himself had eaten and sometimes he had frequented other restaurants where even the great Samuel Johnson himself had been unable to eat. Often he had gone into the British Museum and leant against a mummy-case, or taken a bus to Chelsea and pressed his forehead against the brass plate which marked Carlyle's house, but no inspiration had come. And then, suddenly, quite close to the Albert Memorial, he knew— He would write a novel about a boy called William, who had lived in Cornwall, and who came to London and wrote a novel, a novel of which the Westminster Gazette said, "'This novel undoubtedly places the author in the front rank of living novelists.'" William's novel would be a realistic account of, yes, that was it, of a boy called Henry, who had lived in Cornwall, and came to London and wrote a novel— a novel of which the Morning Post said, By this novel the author has indubitably established his claim to be reckoned among the few living novelists who count. But stay! What should this novel of Henry's be about? It would be necessary to describe it. For an hour he wrestled with the problem, and then he had another inspiration. Henry's novel would be about a boy called Thomas, who had lived in Cornwall and who came to London and wrote a novel about a boy called Stephen who had lived in Cornwall and who came to London and wrote a novel about a boy called Michael who had lived in Cornwall and come to London and wrote a novel about a boy called Peter who had lived in Cornwall and... and so on. And every one of the novels would establish the author's right to be reckoned, etc., and place him undoubtedly in the very front rank it was a stupendous idea for a moment john was almost paralysed at contemplation of it there seemed to be no end to this novel as he had planned it was it too much for his powers there was only one way to find out he hurried back to his bed-sitting-room seized a pen and began to write three it was two years later For the last fortnight, John Pencuarto had stopped counting the money in his belt. There was none left. For a fortnight now, he had been living on the belt itself. But a great hope had always sustained him. One day he would hear from the publisher to whom he had sent his novel a year ago. And now, at last, the letter had come, and he was seated in the office of the great Mr. Pump himself. His heart beat rapidly, he felt suffocated. "'Well, Mr. Pencuarto,' said the smiling publisher, "'I may say at once that we like your novel. "'We should have written before, but we have only just finished reading it. "'It is a little long, about two million eight hundred thousand words, I reckon it, "'but I have a suggestion to make which will meet that difficulty.' I suggest that we publish it in half a dozen volumes, stopping for the first volume at the press notices of, say, Peter's novel. We find that the public likes these continuous books. About terms, we will send an agreement along tomorrow. Naturally, as this is a first book, we can only pay a nominal sum on account of royalties, say, £10,000 how will that suit you?' With a heart still beating, John left the office five minutes later and bought a new belt. Then he went to a restaurant where Goldsmith had never been, and ordered a joint and two vegetables. Success had come. 4. I should like to dwell upon the weeks which followed— i should like to tell of john's emotion when he saw his first proofs and of the printer's emotion when he saw what a mess john had made of them i should like to describe how my hero's heart beat during the anxious days of waiting to picture to you his pride at the arrival of his six free copies and his landlady's surprise when he presented her with one above all i should like to bring home to you the eagerness with which he bought and opened the Times Literary Supplement and read his first review. William Trawallium, The First Phase by John Penquarto Seven and a Half by Five and a Quarter Eight Ninety-Six Pages Albert Pump, Nine Shillings I have no time to go into these matters, nor have I time in which to give at length his later press-cuttings in which there was displayed a unanimity of opinion that John Penquarto was now in the front rank of living novelists, one of the limited number whose work really counted. I must hurry on. It was a week after the publication of William to William, the novel which had taken all London by storm, in all the drawing-rooms of Mayfair, in all the clubs of Pall Mall, people were asking each other Who is John Penquarto? Nobody knew, save one. Lady Mary knew. It was not the name Penquarto which had told her. It was, yes, you have guessed it, the scene at the beginning of the book when William Trewallum meets the little Anne and shares his last raspberry drop with her. Even under this disguise she recognized that early meeting she pierced beneath the imagination of the novelist to the recollection of the man. John Penquarto. Of course, now she remembered the name. It had always been a mystery to her friends why Lady Mary had never married. No girl in society had been more eagerly courted. It was whispered that already she had refused more than one archbishop, three newspaper proprietors, and a couple of dukes. Something, she scarcely knew what, told her that this was not love. She must wait. As she dressed to go to the Duchess of Bilberry's at home, she wondered if she would ever meet John Penquarto again, and if he had altered. Mary! It was John speaking. He had seen her the moment she came in at the door. Something, was it the Duchess's champagne at dinner? had reminded him of the acid drop they had eaten together, and this had brought back his memories in a flood. Tonight he would meet her again. He knew it instinctively. Besides, it was like this that William Trewalliam had met Anne again, and Henry Pole Henry had met Sarah, and Thomas Pentumus had met Alice, and—well, anyhow, he knew. John—it was Mary speaking "'Perhaps you had guessed.' "'You knew me?' "'This is John. "'It was his turn.' "'I knew you,' said Mary. "'Do you remember?' Mary blushed, and John did not deviate from the healthy red colour which he had maintained throughout the conversation. In spite of his success, he was never quite at ease in society at this period of his life, nor were Henry Pole, Henry and Thomas Pantumas. They remained handsome, but awkward.' "'which was why women loved them so. "'I love you,' John speaking. "'I think I must have always loved you,' Mary going it. "'He took her hand in his. "'Nobody noticed them. "'They were as much alone as if they had been at the National Gallery together. "'Many of the guests were going through similar scenes of recognition and love-making. "'Others were asking each other if they had read William Trewalliam yet.' and, lying about it, others again were making for the buffet. John and Mary had the world to themselves. 5. They were married a month later. John, who did not look at his best in a frock coat, had pleaded for a quiet wedding, and only the Duchess of Bilbury and Mr. Pump were present at the simple ceremony which took place at the Bloomsbury Registry office. Then the happy couple drove away. And where are they spending the honeymoon? Ah, do you need to ask? At Greenwich? No, fathead, not at Greenwich. At Clacton-on-Sea? Look here, I don't believe you are trying. Have another shot. Yes, dear reader, you are right. They are going back to Polwallop. It might be a good plan to leave them there. THE COMPLETE DRAMATIST I take it that every able-bodied man and woman in this country wants to write a play. Since the news first got out about Orlando What's-His-Name making 50,000 pounds out of the Crimson Sponge, there had been a feeling that only through the medium of the stage can literary art find its true expression. The successful playwright is indeed a man to be envied leaving aside for the moment the question of super-tax the prizes which fall to his lot are worth something of an effort he sees his name correctly spelt on buses which go to such different spots as hammersmith and west norwood and his name spelt incorrectly beneath the photograph of somebody else in the illustrated butler he is a welcome figure at the garden parties of the elect who are always ready to encourage him by accepting free seats for his play. Actor-managers nod to him. Editors allow him to contribute without charge to a symposium on the price of golf balls. In short, he becomes a prominent figure in London society. And, if he is not careful, somebody will say so. But even the unsuccessful dramatist has his moments i knew a young man who married somebody else's mother and was allowed by her fourteen gardeners to amuse himself sometimes by rolling the tennis court it was an unsatisfying life and when rash acquaintances asked him what he did he used to say that he was for the bar now he says he is writing a play and we look round the spacious lawns and terraces and marvel at the run his last one must have had however i assume that you who read this are actually in need of the dibs your play must be not merely a good play but a successful one how shall this success be achieved frankly i cannot always say if you came to me and said i am on the stock exchange and bulls are going down or up or sideways or whatever it might be there's no money to be made in the city nowadays and i want to write a play instead how shall i do it well i couldn't help you but suppose you said i'm fond of writing my people always say my letters home are good enough for punch i've got a little idea for a play about a man and a woman and another woman and but perhaps i'd better keep the plot a secret for the moment anyhow it's jolly exciting and I can do the dialogue all right. The only thing is, I don't know anything about technique and stagecraft, and the three unities, and that sort of rot. Can you give me a few hints? Suppose you spoke to me like this, then I could do something for you. My dear sir, I should reply, or madam, you have come to the right shop lend me your ear for ten minutes and you shall learn just what stagecraft is and i should begin with a short homily on soliloquy if you ever read your shakespeare and no dramatist should despise the works of another dramatist he may always pick up something in them which may be useful for his next play if you ever read your shakespeare it is possible that you have come across this passage enter hamlet ham to be or not to be and so on in the same vein for some thirty lines these few remarks are called a soliloquy being addressed rather to the world in general than to any particular person on the stage now the object of this soliloquy is plain the dramatist wished us to know the thoughts which were passing through hamlet's mind and it was the only way he could think of in which to do it of course a really good actor can often give a clue to the feelings of a character simply by a facial expression there are ways of shifting the eyebrows distending the nostrils and exploring the lower molars with the tongue by which it is possible to denote respectively surprise defiance and doubt indeed irresolution being the keynote of hamlet's soliloquy a clever player could to some extent indicate the whole thirty lines by a silent working of the jaw but at the same time it would be idle to deny that he would miss the finer shades of the dramatist's meaning The insolence of office and the spurns, to take only one line, would tax the most elastic face. So the soliloquy came into being. We moderns, however, see the absurdity of it. In real life, no one thinks aloud, or in an empty room. The up-to-date dramatist must certainly avoid this hallmark of the old-fashioned play. What, then, is to be done? If it be granted, first, that the thoughts of a certain character should be known to the audience, and, secondly, that soliloquy, or the habit of thinking aloud, is in opposition to modern stage technique, how shall a soliloquy be avoided without damage to the play? Well, there are more ways than one, and now we come to what is meant by stagecraft stagecraft is the art of getting over these and other difficulties and if possible getting over them in a showy manner so that people will say how remarkable his stagecraft is for so young a writer when otherwise they mightn't have noticed it at all thus in this play we have been talking about an easy way of avoiding hamlet's soliloquy would be for ophelia to speak first Oph, what are you thinking about my lord ham i am wondering whether to be or not to be whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer and so on till you get to the end when ophelia might say ah yes or something non-committal of that sort this would be an easy way of doing it but it would not be the best way for the reason that it is too easy to call attention to itself what you want is to make it clear that you are conveying hamlet's thoughts to the audience in rather a clever manner that this can now be done we have to thank the well-known inventor of the telephone i forget his name the telephone has revolutionized the stage with its aid you can convey anything you like across the footlights in this old badly made play it was frequently necessary for one of the characters to take the audience into his confidence. Having disposed of my uncle's body, he would say to the stout lady in the third row of stalls, I now have leisure in which to search for the will, but first to lock the door lest I should be interrupted by Harold and what In the modern, well-constructed play he simply brings up an imaginary confederate and tells him what he is going to do. Could anything be more natural? Let us, to give an example of how this method works, go back again to the play we have been discussing. Enter Hamlet. He walks quickly across the room to the telephone and takes up the receiver impatiently. Ham. Hello? Hello? I want double nine... Hello? I want double nine to... Hello? Double nine two three Elsinore, double nine. Yes, hello. Is that you, Horatio? Hamlet speaking. I say, I've been wondering about this business. To be or not to be—that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows. What? No, Hamlet speaking. What? Aren't you Horatio? I want double nine two three. Sorry. Is that you, exchange? You gave me double five. I want double nine. Hello? Is that you, Horatio? Hamlet speaking. I've been wondering about this business. To be or not to be, that is the... What? No, I said to be or not to be. No, B, B E. Yes, that's right. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler and so on you see how effective it is but there is still another way of avoiding the soliloquy which is sometimes used with good results it is to let hamlet if that happens to be the name of your character enter with a small dog pet falcon mongoose tame bear or whatever animal is most in keeping with the part and confide in this animal such sorrows hopes or secret history as the audience has got to know this has the additional advantage of putting the audience immediately in sympathy with your hero how sweet of him all the ladies say to tell his little bantam about it if you are not yet tired as i am of the prince of denmark i will explain for the last time how a modern author might rewrite his speech Enter Hamlet with his favorite boarhound, Ham, to B.H. To be or not to be? Ah, Fido, Fido, that is the question. Eh, hey, old Fido boy? Whether tis nobler in... How now? A rat? Rats, Fido, fetch him. In the mind to suffer the slings and... Down, sir. Arrows? Put it down. Arrows of drop it fido good old dog and so on which strikes me as rather sweet and natural let us now pass on to the very important question of exits and entrances to the young playwright the difficulty of getting his characters on to the stage would seem much less than the difficulty of finding them something to say when they are there he writes gaily and without hesitation Enter Lord Arthur Fluffinose, and only then begins to bite the end of his penholder and gaze round his library for inspiration. Yet it is on that one word, enter, that his reputation for dramatic technique will hang. Why did Lord Arthur Fluffinose enter? The obvious answer, that the firm which is mentioned in the programme as supplying his trousers would be annoyed if he didn't, is not enough. Nor is it enough to say that the whole plot of the piece hinges on him, and that without him the drama would languish. What the critic wants to know is why Lord Arthur chose that very moment to come in, the very moment when Lady Larkspur was left alone in the oak-beamed hall of Larkspur Towers. Was it only a coincidence And if the young dramatist answers callously, yes, it simply shows that he has no feeling for the stage whatever. In that case, I needn't go on with this article. However, it will be more convenient to assume, dear reader, that in your play Lord Arthur had a good reason for coming in. If that be so, he must explain it. It won't do to write like this. Enter, Lord Arthur... Lady Larkspur starts suddenly and turns to him. Lady Larkspur, Arthur, you here? He gives a nod of confirmation. She pauses a moment and then, with a sudden passionate movement, flings herself into his arms. Take me away, Arthur. I can't bear this life any longer. Larkspur bit me again this morning for the third time. I want to get away from it all. Swoons. The subsequent scene may be so pathetic that, on the hundredth night, it is still bringing tears to the eyes of the fireman, but you must not expect to be treated as a serious dramatist. You will see this for yourself, if you consider the passage as it should properly have been written. Enter, Lord Arthur Fluffinose. Lady Larkspur looks at him with amazement. Lady Larkspur. Arthur, what are you doing here? "'Lord Arthur, I caught the two-three from town. "'It gets in at three-thirty-seven, "'and I walked over from the station. "'It's only a mile.' "'At this point he looks at the grandfather clock in the corner, "'and the audience, following his eyes, "'sees that it is seven minutes to four, "'which appears delightfully natural. "'I came to tell Larkspur to sell bungos. "'They are going down.' "'Lady Larkspur, folding her hands over her chest,' and gazing broodingly at the footlights, Larkspur! Lord Arthur, anxiously, What is it? Suddenly, Has he been ill-treating you again? Lady Larkspur, flinging herself into his arms, Oh, Arthur, Arthur, take me away! And so on. But it may well be that Lord Larkspur has an intrigue of his own with his secretary, Miss Devereux. And, if their big scene is to take place on the stage, too, the hall has got to be cleared for them in some way. Your natural instinct will be to say, Exon, Fluffinose and Lady Larkspur, right. Enter, Lord Larkspur and Miss Devereux. left. This is very immature, even if you are quite clear as to which side of the stage is L and which is R. "'You must make the evolutions seem natural. "'Thus enter from the left Miss Stevereaux. "'She stops in surprise at seeing Lord Arthur "'and holds out her hand. "'Miss D. "'Why, Lord Arthur, whatever, Lord A. "'How do you do? "'I've just run down to tell Lord Larkspur to— "'Miss D. "'He's in the library. "'At least he— "'Lord A. "'Taking out his watch— ah then perhaps i'd better exit by door on left miss d to lady l have you seen the times about here there is a set of verses in the financial supplement which lord larkspur wanted to she wanders vaguely round the room enter lord larkspur by door at back why here you are i've just sent lord arthur into the library to lord l i went out to speak to the gardener about lady l ah then i'll go and tell arthur exit to library leaving miss Devereux and lord Luxmore alone and there you are you will of course appreciate that the unfinished sentences not only save time but also make the manoeuvring very much more natural so far i have been writing as if you were already in the thick of your play but it may well be that the enormous difficulty of getting the first character on has been too much for you. How, you may be wondering, are you to begin your masterpiece? The answer to this will depend upon the length of the play, for upon the length depends the hour at which the curtain rises. If yours is an 8.15 play, you may be sure that the stalls will not fill up till 8.30, and you should therefore let loose the lesser-paid members of the cast on the opening scene, keeping your fifty-pounders in reserve. In an 8.45 play, the audience may be plunged into the drama at once, but this is much the more difficult thing to do, and for the beginner, I should certainly recommend the 8.15 play, for which the recipe is simple. As soon as the lights go down, and while the bald, stout gentleman is kicking our top-hat out of his way, treading heavily on our toes, and wheezing, sorry, sorry, as he struggles to his seat, a buzz begins behind the curtain. What the players are saying is not distinguishable, but a merry, girlish laugh rings out now and then, followed by the short, sardonic chuckle of an obvious man of the world. Then the curtain rises, and it is apparent that we are assisting at an at-home of considerable splendor. Most of the characters seem to be on the stage, and for once we do not ask how they got there. We presume they have all been invited. Thus you have had no difficulty with your entrances. As the chatter dies down, a chord is struck on the piano. The Bishop of Splashington, "'Charming, quite one of my favourites. "'Do play it again. "'Relapses into silence for the rest of the evening. "'The Duchess of Southbridge to Lord Reggie. "'Oh, Reggie, what did you say?' "'Lord Reggie, putting up his eyeglass. "'Said I'd bally well. "'Top-ho, what, don't you know?' "'Lady Evangeline, to Lady Violet. "'Oh, I must tell you what that funny Mr. Danby said.' doesn't lady violet none the less trills with happy laughter prince von ichdien the well-known ambassador loudly to an unnamed gentleman what your country ought to do he finishes his remark in the lip language which the unnamed gentleman seems to understand at any rate he nods several times there is more girlish laughter, more buzz, and more deaf-and-dumb language than Lord Tuppenny, Well, what about auction? Amid murmurs of, you'll play, field-marshal, and auction, archbishop, the crowd drifts off, leaving the hero and heroine alone in the middle of the stage. And then you can begin. But now I must give you a warning. You will never be a dramatist until you have learned the technique of... MEALS In spite of all you can do in the way of avoiding soliloquies and getting your characters on and off the stage in a dramatic manner, a time will come when you realize, sadly, that your play is not a bit like life after all. Then is the time to introduce a meal on the stage a stage meal is popular because it proves to the audience that the actors even when called charles haltry or owen narr are real people just like you and me look at mr Bouchier eating we say excitedly to each other in the pit having had a vague idea up till then that an actor lived like a god on praise and grease paint and his photograph in the papers "'Another cup, won't you?' says Miss Gladys Cooper. "'No, thank you,' says Mr. Dennis Eadie. "'Dash it, it's exactly what we do at home ourselves. "'And when, to clinch matters, the dramatist makes Mr. Gerald du Maurier "'light a real cigarette in the third act, "'then he can flatter himself that he has indeed achieved the ambition "'of every stage writer, and brought the actual scent of the hay across the footlights. But there is a technique to be acquired in this matter, as in everything else within the theatre. The great art of the stage craftsman, as I have already shown, is to seem natural rather than to be natural. That your actors have tea by all means, but see that it is a properly histrionic tea. This is how it should go hostess how do you do you'll have some tea won't you rings bell guest thank you enter butler hostess tea please matthews butler impassively, yes milady this is all he says during the play so he must try and get a little character into it in order that the era may remark mr thompson was excellent as matthews however his part is not over yet for he returns immediately followed by three footmen just as it happened when you last called on the duchess and sets out the tea hostess holding up the property lump of sugar in the tongs sugar guest luckily no thanks hostess replaces lump and inclines empty teapot over tray for a moment then hands him a cup painted brown inside, thus deceiving the gentleman with the telescope in the upper circle. Guest, touching his lips with the cup and then returning it to its saucer. Well, I must be going. Re-enter, butler and three footmen, who remove the tea-things. Hostess, to Guest, good-bye, so glad you could come. Exit, Guest his visit has been short but it has been very thrilling while it lasted tea is the most usual meal on stage for the reason that it is the least expensive the property lump of sugar being dusted and used again on the next night for a stage dinner a certain amount of genuine sponge cake has to be made to look like fish chicken or cutlet in novels the hero has often pushed his meals away untasted, but no stage hero would do anything so unnatural as this. The etiquette is to have two bites before the butler, and the three footmen whisk away the plate. Two bites are made, and the bread is crumbled, with an air of great eagerness. One feels that in real life the guest would clutch hold of the footman and say, "'Half a mo', old chap, I haven't nearly finished.' but the actor is better schooled than this besides the thing is coming back again as chicken directly but it is the cigarette which chiefly has brought the modern drama to its present state of perfection without the stage cigarette many an epigram would pass unnoticed many an actor's hands would be much more noticeable and the man who works the fireproof safety curtain would lose even the smallest amount of excitement which at present attaches to his job. Now, although it is possible, in the case of a few men at the top of the profession, to leave the conduct of the cigarette entirely to the actor, you will find it much more satisfactory to insert in the stage directions the particular movements, with match and so forth, that you wish carried out. Let us assume that Lord Arthur asks Lord John what a cynic is, the question of what a cynic is having arisen quite naturally in the course of the plot. Let us assume further that you wish Lord John to reply, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. It has been said before, but you may feel that it is quite time it was said again. Besides, for all the audience knows, Lord John may simply be quoting. Now, this answer, even if it comes quite fresh to the stalls, will lose much of its effect if it is said without the assistance of a cigarette. Try it for yourself. Lord John. A cynic is a man who, etc. Rotten. Now try again. Lord John. A cynic is a man who, etc. Lights cigarettes. No, even that is not good. Once more. Lord John, lighting cigarettes. A cynic is a man who... Etc. Better, but leaves too much to the actor. Well, I see, I must tell you. Lord John, taking out gold cigarette case from his left-hand upper waistcoat pocket. A cynic, my dear Arthur. He opens case deliberately, puts cigarette in mouth, and extracts gold matchbox from right-hand trouser. Is a man who strikes match, knows the price of, lights cigarette, everything, and, standing with match in one hand and cigarette in the other, the value of, blows out match, of, inhales deeply from cigarette and blows out a cloud of smoke, nothing. It makes a different thing of it altogether of course on the actual night the match may refuse to strike and lord john may have to go on saying a man who a man who a man who until the ignition occurs but even so it will still seem delightfully natural to the audience as if he were making up the epigram as he went along while as for blowing the match out he can hardly fail to do that in one The cigarette, of course, will be smoked at other moments than epigrammatic ones, but on these other occasions you will not need to deal so fully with it in the stage directions. Duke, lighting cigarette. I trust, Perkins, that... Is enough. You do not want to say... Duke, dropping ash on trousers. It seems to me, my love... Or... Duke, removing stray piece of tobacco from tongue. What Ireland needs is... Still less. Duke, throwing away end of cigarette. Show him in. For this must remain one of the mysteries of this stage. What happens to the stage cigarette when it has been puffed four times? The stage tea, of which a second cup is always refused, the stage cutlet, which is removed with the connivance of the guest after two mouthfuls the stage cigarette which nobody ever seems to want to smoke to the end thinking of these as they make their appearances in the houses of the titled one would say that the hospitality of the peerage was not a thing to make any great rush for but that would be to forget the butler and the three footmen even a duke cannot have everything and what his chef may lack in skill his butler more than makes up for in impassivity a poetry recital it has always been the privilege of art to be patronized by wealth and rank indeed if we literary and artistic strugglers were not asked out to afternoon tea sometimes by our millionaire acquaintances it is doubtful if we should be able to continue the struggle. Recently, a new and less expensive method of entertaining genius has become fashionable in the best circles, and the aspiring poet is now invited to the house of the great, not for the purpose of partaking of bodily refreshment himself, but in order that he may afford spiritual refreshment to others. In short, He is given an opportunity of reciting his own works in front of the fair the rich and the highly born and making what he can out of it in the way of advertisement let us imagine that we have been lucky enough to secure an invitation to one of lady paul doodle's poetry at homes at her charming little house in berkeley square the guests are waiting their eyes fixed in eager anticipation on the black-covered throne at the farther end of the room, whereon each poet will sit to declaim his masterpiece, when suddenly Lord Paul Doodle is observed to be making his way cautiously towards a side door. Fortunately, he is stopped in time, and dragged back to his seat next to the throne, from which he rises a moment later to open the proceedings ladies and gentlemen he says we are met here this afternoon in order to listen to some of our younger poets who will recite from their own works so far i have always managed to avoid so far i have been unavoidably prevented from attending these occasions but i understand that the procedure is as follows each poet will recite a short sample of his poetry after which no doubt you will go home and order from your bookseller a complete set of his works lady paul doodle goes quickly over to him and whispers vigorously i find i am wrong says our host full sets of the author's works can be obtained on the way out There is, however, no compulsion in the matter, and if you take my advice, well, well, let us get on. Our first poet, here he puts on his glasses and reads from a paper on the table in front of him, is Mr. Sidney Warple, of whom you, er, have, er, doubtless all heard. At any rate, you will hear him now. Mr. Sidney Warple, tall and thin, wearing the sort of tie which makes you think you must have seen him before, steps forward amidst applause. He falls back into the throne, as if in deep thought, and passes a hand across his hair. Mr. Warple, very suddenly. Don at Surbiton." Where? says a frightened voice at the back says lady poldoodle in a whisper surbiton surbiton is passed round the back seats not that it is going to matter in the least mr warple repeats the title and then recites in an intense voice these lines out of the nethermost bonds of night out of the gloom where the bat's wings brush me free from the crepitous doubts which crush me, forth I fare to the cool sunlight, forth to a world where the wind sweeps clean, where the smooth-limbed ash to the blue stands bare, and the gossamer spreads her opal'd wear, and jumps is catching the 8.15. After several more verses like this, he bows and retires. Lady Poldoodle, still mechanically clapping, says to her neighbor, How beautiful! Dawn at Surbiton. Such a beautiful idea, I think. Wasn't it sublime, answers the neighbor, the wonderful contrast between the great pageant of nature and poor Mr. Jones catching, always catching, the 815. But Lord Pauldoodle is rising again. Our next poet, he says, is miss miranda uh, herrick whose work is so distinguished for its er its or distinction miss herrick dressed in pale green and wearing pince-nez flutters in girlishly she gives a nervous little giggle pushes out her foot withdraws it and begins when i take my bath in the morning the audience wakes up with a start When you take your what, says Lord Paul Doodle. Miss Herrick begins again, starting this time with the title. Life When I take my bath in the morning, when I strip for the cool delights, and the housemaid brings me towels and things, do I wreck of the coming night? A materially-minded man whispers to his neighbour that he always wonders what's for breakfast. she says for there is another verse to come when my hair comes down in the evening and my tired clothes swoon to the ground do i bother my head as i leap in bed of the truth which the dawn brings round in the uncomfortable pause which follows a voice is heard saying does she and lady paul doodle asked kindly is that all dear what more could there be says miss herrick with a sigh what more is there to say it is life life how true says the hostess but won't you give us something else that one ended so very suddenly after much inward and outward wrestling miss herrick announces a thought the music falls across the vale from nightingale to nightingale The owl within the ivied tree makes love to me, makes love to me. But all the tadpoles in the pond are dumb, however fond. "'I begin to think that there is something in a tadpole, after all,' murmurs Lord Paul Doodle to himself as the author wriggles her way out. "'After all,' says one guest to another, "'Why shouldn't a tadpole make love as much as anybody else?' "'I think,' says her neighbour, "'that the idea of youth trying vainly to express itself— "'or am I thinking of caterpillars?' "'Lord Paul Doodle, what is a tadpole exactly?' "'A tadpole,' he answers decisively,
1: "'is
0: an extremely immature wriggling creature, "'which is quite rightly dumb.' now steps forward mr horatio bullfinch full of simple enthusiasm one of the london school he gives us his famous poem berkeley square the men who come from the north country are tall and very fair the men who come from the south country have hardly any hair but the only men in the world for me are the men of berkeley square the sun may shine at Colchester, the rain may rain at Penge, from low-hung skies the dawn may rise broodingly on Stonehenge, knee-deep in clover the lambs at Dover nibble awhile and stare, but there's only one place in the world for me, Berkeley, Berkeley Square, and so on down to that magnificent last verse the skylark triumphs from the blue above the barley fields at loo the blackbird whistles loud and clear upon the hills at windermere but oh i simply love the way our organ-grinder plays all day lord paul doodle rises to introduce mr montague mott mr mott he says is i am told our leading exponent of what is called ver libre which means well you will see what it means directly mr mott a very ugly little man who tries to give you the impression that he is being ugly on purpose and could easily be beautiful if he were not above all that sort of thing announces the title of his masterpiece It is called why is the fat woman's face so red well what else could you call it why is the fat woman's face so red is it because her stays are too tight or because she wants to sneeze and lost her pocket handkerchief or only because her second son the engineer is dying of cancer I cannot be certain, yet I sit here and ask myself, wonderingly, why is the fat woman's face so red? It is generally recognized that, in Mr. Mott, we have a real poet. There are loud cries of encore. Mr. Mott shakes his head. I have written no more, he says in a deep voice. I have given you the result of three years' work. "'Perhaps in another three years?' He shrugs his shoulders and walks gloomily out. "'Such a sweet idea,' says Lady Poldoodle. "'I sit here and ask myself, wonderingly, how true, how very true.' "'I couldn't quite follow it, dear,' says her neighbour, frankly. "'Did he marry her, after all?' "'Lord Poldoodle, looking slightly more cheerful, gets once more onto his legs.' You will all be very glad to hear, uh, you will all be very sorry to hear that we have only one more poet on our list this afternoon, Uh, Mr. Cecil Willow, the well-known, er, poet. Mr. Willow, a well-dressed young man, fair and rather stout, and a credit to any drawing-room, announces the subject of his poem, Liberty. Liberty. Liberty what crimes have been committed in thy name murmurs lord Poldoodle to himself liberty there were two thrushes in a tree the one was tamed the other free because his wings were clipped so small the tame one did not fly at all but sang to heaven all the day the other shortly after flew away there were two women in a town the one was blonde, the other brown the brown one pleased a viscount's son not richard but the other one he gave her a delightful flat the blond one loved a man called alfred sprat there were two kings on thrones of gold the one was young the other old the young one's laws were wisely made till some one took a hand grenade and through it shouting down with kings the old one laid foundation-stones and things how delightful says everybody how very delightful thank you lady poldiddle for such a delightful afternoon THE PERILS OF REVIEWING A most unfortunate thing has happened to a friend of mine called, to a friend of, to a, well, I suppose the truth will have to come out. It happened to me. Only don't tell anybody. I reviewed a book the other day. It is not often that I do this, because before one can review a book, one has to, or is supposed to read it, which wastes a good deal of time. Even that isn't an end of the trouble. The article which follows is not really one's own, for the wretched fellow who wrote the book is always trying to push his way in with his views on matrimony or the Sussex Downs or whatever his ridiculous subject is. He expects one to say, Mr. Blank's treatment of Hilda's relations with her husband is masterly, whereas what one wants to say is, putting Mr. Blank's book on one side, we may consider the larger question whether, and so consider it, alone, to the end of the column. Well, I received Mr. Blank's book, Rotundity. As I expected, the first draft had to be reheaded, a corner of old London, and used elsewhere. Mr. Blank didn't get into it at all. I kept promising myself a sentence. Take Rotundity, for instance, the new novel by William Blank, which, etc. But before I was ready for it, the article was finished. In my second draft, realizing the dangers of delay, I began at once. This remarkable novel, and continued so for a couple of sentences, but on reading it through afterwards, I saw at once that the first two sentences were out of place in an article that obviously ought to be called The Last Swallow, so I cut them out, sent The Last Swallow, a reverie, to another editor, and began again. The third time, I was successful. Of course, in my review, I said all the usual things, I said that Mr. blank's attitude to life was subjective rather than objective, and a little lower down that it was objective rather than subjective. I pointed out that in his treatment of the major theme he was a neo-romanticist, but I suggested that, on the other hand, he had nothing to learn from the Russians, or the Russians had nothing to learn from him, I forget which. And finally, i said and this is the cause of the whole trouble that antoine vorel's world-famous classic and i looked it up in the encyclopedia world-renowned classic je comprends tout had been not without its influence on mr blank it was a good review and the editor was pleased about it a few days later mr blank wrote to say that curiously enough he had never read je comprends tout it didn't seem to me very curious because i had never read it either but i thought it rather odd of him to confess as much to a stranger the only book of vorelle's which i had read was consolatrice in an english translation however one doesn't say these things in a review now i have a french friend Henri, one of those annoying Frenchmen who talk English much better than I do, and Henri, for some extraordinary reason, had seen my review. He has to live in London now, but his heart is still in Paris, and I imagine that every word of his beloved language which appears, however casually, in an English paper, mysteriously catches his eye, and brings the scent and sounds of the boulevard to him across the coffee-cups. So, the next time I met him, he shook me warmly by the hand and told me how glad he was that I was an admirer of Antoine Volant's novels. "'Who isn't?' I said with a shrug, and, to get the conversation on to safer ground, I added hastily that in some ways I almost liked Consolatrice best. He shook my hand again. So did he. A great book.' "'But, of course,' he said, "'one must read it in the original French. "'It is the book of all others which loses by translation.' "'Of course,' I agreed. "'Really, I don't see what else I could have done.' "'Do you remember that wonderful phrase?' "'And he rattled it off. "'Magnificent, is it not?' "'Magnificent,' I said, remembering an appointment instead.' well i must be getting on good-bye and as i walked off i patted my forehead with my handkerchief and wondered why the day had grown so warm suddenly however the next day was even warmer Henri came to see me with a book under his arm we all have one special book of our own which we recommend to our acquaintances regarding the love of it as perhaps the best passport to our friendship. This was Henri's. He was about to test me. I had read and admired his favourite Vorel in the original French. Would I love his darling La Forgue? My reputation as a man, as a writer, as a critic, depended on it. He handed me the book in French. It is all there," he said reverently as he gave it to me. All your English masters—they are come from him. Perhaps most of all your—but you shall tell me when you have read it. You shall tell me whom most you seem to see there. Your Meredith, your Shaw, your—but you shall tell me. I will tell you," I said faintly. And I've got to tell him. Don't think that I shall have any difficulty in reading the book. Glancing through it just now, I came across this. Kate, avez-vous soupé avant le spectacle? Non, je n'avais guère le cœur à manger. Well, that's easy enough. But I doubt if it is one of the most characteristic passages. It doesn't give you a clue to La Lafraucuse's manner any more than Must I sit here, mother? Yes, without a doubt you must. Tells you all that you want to know about Meredith. There's more in it than that. And I've got to tell him. But fancy holding forth on an author's style after reading him laboriously with a dictionary. However, I must do my best. And in my more hopeful moments, I see the conversation going like this. Well oh wonderful with emotion really wonderful you see them all there yes yes it's really wonderful meredith i mean well it's simply after a pause wonderful you see meredith there most yes sometimes and then with truth sometimes i i don't "'It's difficult to say. "'Sometimes I, er, Shaw, er, "'well, it's "'with a gesture somewhat gallic. uh, "'How can I put it?' "'Not Thackeray at all?' "'He says, watching me eagerly. "'I decided to risk it. "'Oh, but of course. "'I mean, Thackeray. "'Well, when I said Meredith, "'I was thinking of the others. "'But Thackeray, I mean... Thackeray is, er, I've forgotten the author's name for the moment and go on hastily, I mean, er, Thackeray, obviously. He shakes me by the hand. I am his friend. But this conversation only takes place in my more hopeful moments, in my less hopeful ones. I see myself going into the country for quite a long time. End of section 2.